interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome everyone to my bloody podcast here on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and everything else. We have a wonderful episode today. We are in a worldwide quarantine lockdown, but that's not stopping any of us. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the man I want to walk in a quarantine life with, Mark Chafferdini. How's it going, my man? I will walk with you anywhere as long as it's six feet away. Six feet away. Awesome. (laughs) Oh, six feet away. Well, I'm excited about the show we have today because we have the legendary, the the champions of film, Jonathan and Josh Baker. You know them. They made a fantastic film that came out in 2018 called Kin. K-I-N, so happy to have them on the show, Jonathan, Josh, Baker, I believe the brothers. Guys, thanks for having us, <laughs> appreciate it, we're here. We're here. You're we're, too kind. We're, where, where, where are you guys at right now, because we're, we're in Dallas, Texas, where are you guys at? Uh, we are in Los Angeles, both of us, Josh is uh, uh, about a couple couple suburbs away from where I am, but um, we are isolated, and our families are here. You may hear them in the background. That sounds, that sounds good. That sounds good. I like it. We're all, we're all here doing this together, and uh, I just, I, I'm just happy to have you on here on the show. We're going to have a good time. And I remember you guys came into Dallas for uh, a press tour, right, back when Ken yeah, was man. releasing? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. We, spoke, we spoke to you, right? I think I might have had somebody else go to that uh, interview with Boomstick mm-hmm. Comics and High Def Digest, but uh, but yeah, yeah that's, I was that's right. I was there in spirit. I, I really was there in spirit, and I, I missed a good time. I would have brought some alcohol with me. I have some alcohol right now, so it's it's, <laughs> it's noon that's somewhere, good, right? <laughs> Absolutely, it is. Uh, what a weird damn time, guys. We appreciate you having us during this bizarre uh global event you know we're here to chat movies yeah be be distracted let yeah let let me let me start by asking you both uh, a question here where i want to know jonathan and josh where did it all begin with you two in film like where did it all begin Where, where set the scene of like because you grew up together, obviously, from being born. I just want to know, where did it begin? What was that? Where did it, where did it start with your film passion and making movies? Well, we, uh, we've pretty much done the same kind of trajectory in our creative the very beginning. Um, we've been doing a lot of this stuff together over the years, whether it was school or, or whether it was... Um, art school but we started off as designers and we were doing uh film titles back in the day uh around when sort of 
I guess the seven titles were like a big deal, you know, in that kind of era. Um, making animations, that kind of thing, and then slowly stepped over the fence into directing. Um, that was back in Sydney in sort of the mid-2000s. And then uh, come sort of 2007, we decided to team up uh, permanently and move to the States. And so we moved to New York, and we were there for a good uh, 10 years doing Avatar. And we... Yeah, we, we hooked up together and called ourselves Twin. Um, we still direct under that moniker. Um, and advertising for us is very different from Hollywood. We treat them. F- um, and so when we're making ads, we're called Twin. And when we make movies and TV, uh, we're Jonathan and Josh Baker. <laughs> That's got to get confusing yeah, for just people. To keep, yeah, just to keep it confusing. I mean, it's it's not confusing. I, I don't think. I, I think we've built a brand in advertising, and and believe it or not, you can't direct a movie and call yourself directed by Twin. It just doesn't work like like that. Um, everyone wants to know what your real names are. So yeah, we we've kind of just used them as different positions and uh advertising is advertising and then when we're making longer storytelling in in hollywood it's it's a different thing i mean the great thing about working in advertising for for the last sort of 15 years together is you know that in a sense was our film school right we we got to work with some of the best dps um, academy award winning dps in the world and editors and production designers and all of the sort of key heads of department from movies they work in advertising as well people just want to make money they want to shoot in la sometimes so they can be around their family and and small quick shoots that just happen and and move on so working in advertising was a really great place to uh hone our skills learn from the very best out there and ultimately uh re-collaborate with some of these people when we got the chance to make our own movie Right. Now, when you uh, were young age, like grade school, did you ever have like any of those, you know, over the shoulder video cameras with the VHS tapes making movies with each other and friends? Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> all about it. All right. All right. Yeah, so- we, uh, we, we, would, we would often, <clears throat> our deal was we would often, one would, would be in the movie and one would be making it. And we'd pretty much just rotate. So you had a crew wherever you would go and cast wherever you would go and we just keep flipping that around and often like did our own versions of trailers and and different movies and things like that and uh and then started sort of writing our own did yeah you- we we were in a big stage of emulating uh which i'm sure a lot of people go through but before you find your voice and before you figure out whether you've got any talent you're basically doing what other people have done and trying to do your version of it in your bedroom and your kitchen. What did, um, what did you guys and, do? What did you guys do? <laughs> well, we went through a big, we went through a big stage of like emulating horror films, to be honest. Um, and so like Candyman and, and all of those kind of eighties, nineties, iconic horrors. We, we did our version of them. And usually they were like tongue in cheek comedy uh, versions just to make our friends laugh. <laughs> they weren't exactly like we we're trying to make something to win a film festival award. Um, I, th- I think I think for Candyman we called it Candy Guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, can- Candy Guy. Don't say it five times. <laughs> totally. Other other stuff will happen. 
Oh my goodness! So, do you still have these? Can can you release like a Criterion Collection version um, of these short films? <laughs> yeah. I think I think they are around. I, I don't know how many of them have been transferred from old technology. I, I know when we worked at uh, Post Houses back in the early early two thousands, I tried to grab them and take them from VHS to Beta uh, tape so that we actually had them in a better format. But I don't know, man. All that stuff's kind of long past. In a box. With, with, in a box yeah, somewhere with, in, in mum's uh, basement. Somewhere. Yeah. We could dig them up. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> That'd be a good uh, Christmas present for us. I'd call mom Baker right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I like that. Well, Mark, let me got... ask you guys a question. So, yeah, so you worked on these, these trailers, these faux trailers. And how long did it take to put together... You know, I know technology was different 20 years ago versus what's now, but... Um. It, yeah, we, we were all about the in-camera editing. Um, we didn't have a lot of gear. We grew up without a lot of money. So when we had this Handycam, uh, there was one from school, which was definitely an on-the-shoulder, put a VHS tape in it um, scenario, and which it looks like, you know, you're a newsman. And then the other one was a was a, just a normal high eight kind of handy cam and that was uh, going to high eight tape and so we didn't have technology to edit anything like i didn't really even figure out the process of editing until we went to college um and so we were doing all just editing within the camera and so you would lay it a take down and then you would watch it and go okay that's a good take if it's not a good take or somebody smiled or laughed or or, or tripped you, you're rewinding the tape and you're recording over it again and so you're going to have these non-perfect edit cuts where you've got uh, three frames of the last take sitting before <laughs> and, 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 and all of that type of stuff. And so you try to get that stuff down to a science. And I, we ended up um, figuring out how to uh, put cables from stereos in and record sound onto it uh, over the top of it. And we, we got into a place where it was totally watchable, but it's about as ghetto as, as filmmaking, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we come from the from the class of you know taping the radio right and making mixtapes for sure recording from the radio. So it's like it's that culture that sort of just makes its way into the film language, and it right. was a really fun place to learn a lot of sort of ingrained techniques that we still use to this day together like just yeah. that sort of shorthand and that collaboration was born back in those days you know like at at the park uh trying to emulate the city of angels trailer with like, <laughs> big, big long trench coats on and standing on the top of swing sets right oh, it's sure awesome. it's sure well is there something what, what was your favorite thing that you've done do you each have one that you find as uh like your holy grail or do you each have one um, uh, completely separate from the other i mean i would say there was a lot of unfinished work uh, as well there was a lot of stuff that we we had we started with grand plans to kind of make our short film or whatever and then you get halfway through it and it just it phases off and you go on to something else um i think from the joke stuff that we made, there was a decent, but they, they were mostly like you do a project in a day. Um, and it's just like, what can we do today? And so when I look back at, you know, the JJ Abrams and Matt Reeves and the way that they like put together these 
shorts and and they're actually fairly watchable i mean they're they're, they're about as um kid friendly as they get but they are big productions in a sense um the same as the guys that that tried to recreate raiders um and it took them like you know 15 years to do all of that stuff is really impressive because we never had the longevity. We, we would always, I guess, have these short attention spans. And so you would just put something out in the day and then you put it on a shelf and move on to the next thing. But the best thing about that is you're just constantly coming up with ideas and you're constantly having that inspiration of let's get something shot today and whatever we finish by the end of the day, is that's what it is. And yeah, the turnover for ideas is incredible. Sometimes it wasn't even about a story sometimes it was just about a, a sequence or a shot you know yes. and just like how how did that trailer or how did that movie do that shot let's do our version of that so we'll bring yeah our fans and all of that kind of thing just to i remember it. yeah sorry dude, i cut you off um oh, i remember yeah. there was there was a period of where we were doing a lot of trailers that were based on like action films and stuff and and so we were probably about 17 18 19 which is way too old to be like pre- <laughs> pretending <laughs> to do some of the things that we were doing. But, um, you know, so, some of it was really dangerous, like because we, we were legit. And so we would go and hang off a bridge. And if John and, and I'm above shooting him and going, OK, that take wasn't very good. And he's given me eyes of like, bro, if I let go, I fall to my death like that. Literally that kind of stuff. It, it was it, you look back and you're like, you thought you were immortal and Eddie do anything for the shot. Crazy. <laughs> Pre Instagram culture. It's, yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah, you know, totally. I wonder what changes in our minds that we're not as willing to take that much risk. What do you think that is? Because I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm 38 years old and I feel like I would still want to do that type of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, me and John have always been those kind of guys. And we were always the kids that were trying to coax other people into doing stupid stuff. And some of it was legitimately stupid and some of it was like no we know our abilities um i know i can climb up to the top of that tree and it's gonna hold my weight but other kids didn't know that and so we were always trying to convince kids to do shit they did not want to do i mean i think uh, i think the fact that there was two of us as well um that looked the same and have the same sort of initials and same interests and same abilities just, you know, we rolled as this like two man crew everywhere. It must've been intimidating for other friends and parents trying to keep up and and we're like trying to convince them to make movies while jumping into, you know, next door neighbor's yards and on (laughs) climbing on their roofs and all that kind of crazy shit. So, you know, we, for us, it was normal for, for everyone else. It must've been like, these kids are weird. So, so when you were growing up and you know, you would be doing your adventures and filmmaking were neighbors in the town kind of like, Oh fuck, here come the Baker brothers go inside. (laughs) I I think there's probably a level of that. I I think we probably had a reputation that I'm not a hundred percent sure we knew about at the time. Um, but I think we were just confident kids that stepped over a few too many social barriers. <laughs> and so we, we, would, we would honestly find ourselves – I mean, look, we didn't have a TV for a good portion of our childhood. And mm. I think, I think that's, that's a major part of our um, – probably around six 
to seven, maybe six years old, our TV broke and we were so poor. Our dad was like, I'm not replacing it. And, and so we didn't have a TV until 14. And so from about six to 14, we spent any second we could going to other friends' houses and then asking them to put movies on so that we could see TV and film. And, and it probably really made us obsessed with, to the point of joining the film industry and, and wanting to be directors. I think a lot of it came from not having a TV as, as, as a kid. And it, the other thing it did was just force us outside a lot. And obviously... Right. I like sort that. of Goonies culture and Stand By Me culture and everything. Like, we became that. And yes. we were constantly on our bikes, constantly out until sort of sunset. And our dad would always have this great sort of rule that he'd give us. is just like, you can pretty much be out, do whatever you want, just protect each other, watch each other's backs, and, and be back for sort of dinner time. So yeah. we'd be out just like creating and, and exploring and doing all that sort of stuff that you imagine from, from an 80s movie. Well, having, having kids now, because I, I, I kind of think to myself, I kind of grew up in the same sort of uh, mindset, you know, leave after breakfast and come home before the lights, you know, before the sun yes. goes down. And, and there was no way of getting a hold of me. My friends and I, I would explore in the woods and build forts and stuff. And now yep. you guys are fathers. I'm a father. I'm like, I, I couldn't let my kid out of my sight for 20 minutes. Isn't, that, isn't that nuts to think about? Like not knowing where your kids are for the majority of the day and just hoping they're going to come back for dinner is, is a really bizarre thing. I mean, obviously we're in a very different time. We're in very different places, even, you know, here in Los Angeles, you just wouldn't consider doing that. But, um, yeah, yeah it, it really sort of built the kind of people with the kind of experiences that we have, um, back then it's, it's a blessing to sort of grow up that way. I do think that our generation, uh, we just turned 41 yesterday. Um, oh, oh, happy birthday. Yeah, happy thank you, man. Happy birthday. So, so <laughs> I, I think our generation kind of got the best of both. Like we, we, we called our company Red Bike, Blue Bike. And that's from these two bikes that we were given when we were very, very young. It was kind of our first ma major Christmas present. And then we stayed on them for like a decade. And and we were out, like John was saying, and exploring the world. And that's a very stand-by-me, um, 50s, 60s, 70s kind of cultural thing of, like, our parents would have had the same thing. But then we were also the generation where video games were invented. And so we have experienced video games from Pong all the way to Halo and, or, or you know, beyond beyond Halo. Um just, and I just think, showed where he stopped playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, but, but I think the, the mix of those two things is really interesting that, that we, uh, our parents couldn't get their heads around some of that video game kind of tech culture stuff, but then they could really relate on the go outside and play with bare feet. Um, and, and as the generation that we came up through the 80s and 90s, I think the combination of those things built who we are. Hmm. So, so you are a product of your environment and your own internal ambitions. So maybe you can clear the air. 
<laughs> do, car, do car crashes happen every day in Australia? Is everything a George Miller movie? Are there BMX bandits <laughs> running up and down? I, I was, firstly, I respect the BMX bandits. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Goose, PJ, and Patapuff. But when Mad Max would come up, it's, what are we, uh, 10 minutes in? <laughs> Yes, there is just to just to clear the air. There is bandits everywhere for starters. <laughs> um, gangs of kids on BMX bikes. Um, still to this day, uh, Mad Max is something the late late seventies. We all grew up with it. Um, it was a, I think it was an icon in in our cinema and something to be very proud of. But in a, this weird way, you guys embraced it maybe more than we did. Um, mm. And I think the same could be said for Crocodile Dundee. There was this real fascination in the 80s, especially, of Americans towards Australians. And I think you guys put us on just as much of a pedestal that we put you guys in that you were fascinated in this Australian culture, which was kind of you guys on steroids in, in this weird <laughs> way of like uh, – Paul, Paul Hogan being out in the bush was kind of what you guys wanted to be. And so you, 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 you a thing out of these, these Australian cultural uh, films in a way that maybe we didn't even. I heard it um, described the other day as Americans saw Australians as uh, Brits that were nicer that you could have a beer with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I could see that too, for sure. And so we, we grew up with culture and specifically film and TV. And so I would struggle to name more than five shows that I watched on TV that were Australian, but pretty much everything else was either American or English. And it was kind of split down the line. You would have this kind of boring, flat, no-color English stuff, which is... Um, probably more intelligent, and there is a little. There's some good gold in there. Things like Faulty Towers and 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 cartoons like Danger Mouse. And then we would have this American culture, which was flashy and expensive and saturated and and exciting. And it's all the superhero stuff, and it's all the A Team, and it's and it's um, Nighthawk and and Auto Man <laughs> and all these great TV shows that defined our childhoods. Um, I don't think we had those shows that were Australian. There was a couple kids shows here and there and things like that, but all of our culture was American. So except BMX bandits. And yes. Yes. <laughs> that is where we were. So, that, I mean, that's red bike, blue bike right there. Yeah. It? Yeah. It, it is weird. Nobody knows about BMX bandits. I would assume besides you two, um, <laughs> but BMX bandits was bit was really big in Australia and it, and it was, Probably on par with for us, Breakin, uh, Beat Street, <laughs> and Rad, and Rad, and the, and they're all like Rad, obviously for BMXs and BMX Bandits for the BMXs, um, and the other two for Breakdance, and they were just cultural icon uh, definers for us. Well, what about the Dirt Bike Kid? Do you remember that one? Ooh, I do, but it was never it was never one for us. Okay, I gotcha. Th thrashing in the skate world and gleaming the cube, you know, they were they were pretty influential too. Yeah. 
BMX oh, yeah. bandits. Claiming the cube, that was huge. That's so good. So a little little bit of a uh, little bit of insider um, tidbit about BMX bandits is Nicole Kidman had a Tom Cruise poster on her wall in that film, and then later went on to marry the dude. Isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> I felt- so you're saying there, there's hope for people out there? <laughs> yes. Australian and have curly hair. They will one day marry Tom Cruise. Awesome. 100%. The, the, the ugly duckling, redhead, curly redhead from BMX Bandits went on to, to marry Tom Cruise. That gave us all hope. <laughs> well, it doesn't hurt that she's a stunner. Have you seen Billy Bathgate? I haven't seen Billy Bathgate. It's good. Re- required viewing. Required, <laughs> required Nicole Kidman viewing. But I'll well, digress. Well, guys, we got to Billy Bathgate and it all fell apart. It all fell so apart. What else, <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> well, um, oh, go ahead. But, Go if go for it, Brian. Uh, I was I was curious. Was there anything that uh, any one or two particular things that, when you were really young, defined your taste in movies? Mm. Mm. Definitely, um, John. What do you think? I would say you you give an answer, and I'll give an answer. Well, I mean, are we talking in terms of theme? Uh, are we talking well, just in terms kind of, like of actual defi- movie titles? I think, like, yeah, just like, I mean, themes and titles. Like, for me, I know I've told the story before, but when Aliens, like the sequel, uh, the James Cameron Aliens came out, my father yes. brought me when I was, I think, five years old in the theater to watch that movie. And then that night after I saw the movie in the theater, he put my mother's pantyhose over his head. So it had like kind of like tentacle type things. And he scared me while I was sleeping. <laughs> and so oh being God. scared and thrilled at the same time defined my crazy wow. passion for film and horror and the, <laughs> the weird and bizarre. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I got to say, man, like, Alien and Aliens, those two specifically, maybe even more uh, James Cameron's sequel, um, were really influential to us as well. Like, that's probably one of the first movies I can remember that we probably shouldn't have been watching at that age. Uh, maybe very similar to your story. Although for us, a lot of it wasn't about at the theater. It was kind of early days of VHS. Um so we would watch it at a friend's house and I remember just being totally scared shitless about that, that alien and that, and that sort of feel of something in the darkness is there. But, watching but John also, also just extremely fascinated by like, I don't know what it was about, uh, H.R. Giga's stuff and, and the way those films felt, but there was a, it didn't feel like all the others. It didn't feel like you could name five others from around the same period and they just didn't have the same weight to it. It's like there was something with this hyper reality on aliens specifically, which was the action was brilliant and the characters were brilliant, but it was also the most scary thing as a child because it's like, does this really exist? Mm. Yeah, that was a big one for us. Definitely something we shouldn't have seen at that age. I would also add, if you if you were going to stay to aliens in general, I think E.T. on the other side of the coin was really super influential for us. It was the second movie we saw at the cinema, the first being The Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, E.T., <laughs> but E.T. we saw 
at age four or five, whatever it was. Um, and I remember having a really emotional reaction to it and it's sticking around for a decade as like our favorite film. And I remember seeing it again at a friend's house on VHS and being affected again. And, and it stuck around. I would still say to this day, it's probably on our list of favorite films because the relationship between Elliot and that alien, you could relate that to a million other films that we want to make. I mean, I think Kin had a, a certain, a certain feel of that. It, it was in Kin. Um, Right. The boy and the relation to something fantastic and something that's foreign and doesn't belong and no one else gets to experience but you. And I think that sentiment has stuck around from 1984. Yeah, and I like that aspect of, you know, it's one of those rare films that is pretty much solely from the view of a child. And even in like the first you know, yes. two thirds of ET. You don't see any adult faces other than the mother because she's kind right. of a kid herself mm. who laughs at penis jokes and stuff. Right. But I think that there's an <laughs> yeah. aspect of, oh, we we are all transported to a kid's mind, and we we forget about our lives for that. Well, and I think that's evident in Ken as well. Yeah, so, I, I hope so. I hope so, because it was... We'll take that, take that as a compliment, man. I mean, uh, movies like um, uh, The Last Starfighter and, and uh, Flight of the Navigator and, and, you know, those kind of 80s movies from a kid's perspective were really important to us. They, they meant a lot. They felt very personal to us. And so a lot of those, uh, a lot of those kind of ingredients w- became what Kin's DNA was. Yeah, well... Coming from the commercial world, you know, you guys have grown up and experienced a lot getting to where Ken was. Uh, on your website, you describe yourselves as having a, a, a incredible eye for detail. So where do you think that came from and um, how does it influence both commercial work and uh, feature work? Um, well, I, I would say just wrote that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the, the, the detail has always been important to us. And it probably came from being uh, illustrators into designers first. Um, a, a lot of what you're focused on is is the attention to detail there. Um, and so I think once we moved into narrative storytelling, it came along whether we wanted it to or not. And you kind of can't get rid of it now. So the way we respect typography, the way that we like using block color, the way all the things we used to do as designers, it didn't go away. All of that kind of came along with and, and influences in some way, the way that we make commercials and the way that we hopefully continue to make film. Um, so I also, think that's probably it. Also one of the, the, the funnest things about directing is being able to sort of dip into all of those fields and work with, professionals at such a high level in all of those fields so whether it's as simple as um the working with a great production designer and sort of being you know vibing on on color palette for the film and and all of that or or costume designer or visual effects supervisor and all of the sort of all of the artists involved in your visual effects i mean we 
for instance, the, the scope of the weapon in Kim, you know, we got to nerd out on that with some really brilliant designers. And a lot of the time people we'd worked with previously, you know, you know, our, you know, previous lives in, in visual effects and in, uh, in design. So we got to kind of go back and, and fish some of those key roles out and actually work with them on our film, which was a, a delight. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess we've always been directors that, that, don't pass off a section of your film or your project to somebody and just say, handle this. Um, we've always really been involved and, and we love that collaboration and we love uh, being there from the brainstorming level and figuring out together what it's going to be and, and then let that person go and create the way that they create. And, uh, you know, you work in commercials, you work with other crew, you hear a lot about the way other directors work. And I'm always amazed when I hear of directors that are like, all right, cool, you go handle that. And they just really didn't even have an idea of what was being done behind the scenes on, say, the sound effects side or the score side or uh, production design or any of it. Um, it, it writing to, to a lot of you know, just go go away, write that and bring it back to me. And I think some directors do get lazy in that respect. Maybe it's because they're working on too many things at the same time, or maybe they just don't have a confidence in doing uh, more than just kind of what's in their lane. But I think some of my favorite directors, Nolan and Fincher and the rest, uh, know how to do everyone's job potentially as good, if not better than than crew members. And so I think there's a real high level of respect I have for some of those guys that can that can rock in anyone else's world and at least have a conversation and know what they're talking about. I think that's it. Speaking their language. I think having strength as a director, being able to sort of put those different hats on step into different fields and be able to communicate very clearly with a wide range of people, you know, I mean, look at even the actors in your film, they all communicate on different levels. They all do yes. different things. So really being a director is just about being um, collaborative and communicative uh, with all of these different types of people, funneling them sort of along the, the same track to make the one yeah. thing that feels that feels uh, integrated and unified, you know? Ah, that's what it's about. Yeah. Ah. Thanks, John. You get that, dude. Well, do you guys ever get in a situation where sometimes in a creative endeavor you tend to focus and lock in on something too much? Does having a brother or somebody that's you know has the same blood as you help get you out of your own way sometimes? Or yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, there there are moments for sure where one of us will get too myopic and not see things from a from a you know bird's eye view, and the other one can step in and say. I think we're just losing, we're missing the point here. Like, let's just step back and look at this from the big picture. And I think it's very, very helpful um, just to have someone else either tell you you're wrong or we're, we're not taking crazy pills. We both feel exactly the same way. Logic is on our side. I think there's a real, there's a, there's a real helpfulness to having two minds that come from a very similar place attacking a problem <clears throat> at the same time. I'm, I'm going to be really honest right now. And just with, with the process of, of Kin, there was a lot that was homegrown and completely hands-on for us. And it felt like 
a short film almost like a passion project we're just we're just making it with our friends there was a lot that felt like that um there was also a, a back-end portion in the edit and test screenings and release um, strategy and dealing with studio and all of that kind of stuff that was new for us. And a lot of the time we were told the words, just trust the process, meaning that, you know, this machine of Hollywood knows how to do things and just allow it to happen to your film. And sometimes we'd be looking at each other going, no, I, I don't agree with that whatsoever. And that's how you make a very derivative, very obvious decision. And right now I don't feel comfortable with that. And I, I genuinely think if it was just one of us as a director, you'd be mm. a, a little bit more of a pushover. But there were mm. times that I would look at Josh and go, bro, I don't feel good about this at all. And even without words, you're like, looking at him and he's like I, I don't feel good either and you just got each other's backs and i think having a co-director and not only that having a twin uh you know family kin if you will as your, <laughs> as your director Aha. Uh, it, it just felt <laughs> like like the best kind of level of support built in you know yeah yeah well said well, well, well said. And I'm curious, you know, as someone who writes screenplays, I'm always fascinated on others' process on their initial ideas and the collaborative mm. effort, especially between two family members that are so close. When you start a project, start yep. a writing, what's it like for you guys? Is it kind of like, do you go to like the pub and drink and like write things down on napkins or is it kind of like you sit at a table and, like, and have fights <laughs> yes um we come up with all ideas over bar fights using yeah. uh bar stools um <laughs> i i would say That's so the way we've had yeah, yeah it is so we, Aussie, man. The, the way we've had the most success so far is usually one of us sparking an original idea Going, whether it's like you dreamt it, so it's, you know, some of the projects we've come up with have literally come from dreams. Some of them have come from just, you know, pondering in the shower. Some of them have come while driving around the streets of LA. Going to the other person saying, I've got this idea for a movie. And I would say most of, most of it starts with that. And then pitching something that's either a napkin idea, something that is very short or something that is really extensive. And we've had both. Um, there was an idea that came from a dream where you know, I almost said the entire first act and, and John was just like, this thing, this is, this is amazing. And we both then just fleshed out what that would be. And there was an idea recently for a TV show that John almost came to me with the whole thing. And I was like, yep, that's good. Um, but, but at other times it's, it's what if we mix this with this and it felt like this and the lead character was like this, what, what should we do with it? And, and then we just spend, months coming up with pushing it forward and i heard seth rogan say this recently and, and i really related to it is it sits in your files for years and you chip away at it you add to it and you keep making it better and if the idea is no good 
it'll go away on its own because you just lose interest and you and, and there's nothing about it that's kind of driving you forward. And we've had plenty of those ideas where, you know, technically they're written down somewhere, but it's not something we're actively pursuing because there's just not enough there. If there is, and, it, and, it's, and it's a really exciting idea, it's kind of going to continue to write itself. And you're going to want to focus on your attention on just building it out and making it better. And I think one of the best things about me and John as a working partnership is the fact that we can brainstorm an idea very quickly and we can bounce things off each other very occasionally. It'll get to a point of John wants one thing and I want another, and then we're kind of stuck and we have to talk it out logically and which one is better. And there's maybe an argument, but that doesn't happen that often. Most of the time it's just pushing an idea forward until it's better and it's better and it's better. Um, and so we built a slate of, of personal projects just with that idea of one of us comes up with something, pitches it to the other, and then we make it better together. And then we go out and we try to find a family and a team that will uh, help get it made. And so right now, I, I think since Kin came out, you know, we've we've stepped on and at a on occasion off um, a couple projects, but most of the time we're just sort of pushing some of this development stuff forward, um, you know, taking things like Josh said from a napkin idea um, to script stage and finding producers for it and that kind of thing. Um, and some of that's for TV and some of that's for film and some of that for other mediums um, like podcasts and a bunch of other things. But, you know, then we would have to most of the time bring um, a writer involved because I think as as we call, we we collaborate really well with other people. I think we've found that the egoless um, sort of very just collaborative way of working with with a partner um, seems to work with us, and and we've kind of embraced it as our thing right like we need to be open-minded or else we just wouldn't get anywhere um so working with writers is really enjoyable for us um we don't like to sort of sit over a typewriter and and and, and co-write together we prefer to bring someone in that can bring new ideas bring new life to it and and collaborate with them i think i said collaborate like five times <laughs> Well, I like that. I like it. <laughs> I, I do so like that's, that. So that's kind of how we we build ideas, and, and then ultimately it'll become a screenplay or, or a pilot or something like that. Right. Um, unfortunately, that takes a little bit longer. Um, you know, at, there are days that we just wish, oh, man, it'd be so much easier if we just, like, wrote this ourselves. But, you know, I guess the structure we've kind of introduced for ourselves is, is working with the best of the best and, and super talented people. And so that, that there are days that we're just like, I'm so glad we're doing this with that person because they've made it 10 times better than we could have, you know? Right, right. Like that. So you've got, so you've got some experience under your belt working for David Fincher's commercial company, and right. Sean Levy was a producer on Kin. Um, That's right. How did they help you, you know, expand your minds or help you grow, give you input, or you have any fun stories from the sets? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I got a million Sean Levy stories. Um, that guy has Tom Cruise energy. Um, he is, he's got full enthusiasm and he really knows what he's talking about. He's been there, um, you know, 20 times himself. And so he was kind of a great partner to have 
on our first project. And when we were first shopping this thing around, um, our agents sent it out to you know a lot of different people. We sat a ton of meetings in one week to try to find the production company that we could partner with to, to get Kin turn it from just a short film idea and then take our idea for the feature and flesh it out, get it to a place where it was shootable. And so we ended up choosing 21 Laps, which is Sean Levy's company, like you mentioned. But there were a lot of other companies out there that were interested in it as well. And some of those had people, you know, very famous directors and producers that ran that company as well. And so the reason we chose Sean over other people is Sean has a way, kind of like maybe the coach from Friday Night Lights, just has this has this way of giving you a warm hug and going, this is going to be fun and this is going to, to, to work for these reasons. And so he just had full encouragement and um, he, he always said it with a smile. He gave us a lot of his time at the beginning. Um, we did hours long calls with him. Um, both when he was trying to seduce us, um, to, to give it to his company, but also just to, at the beginning to get this thing to a place where it needed to be. Um, but he's a very busy guy. He's making his own projects. I mean, I think he was, when we first met him, he was finishing up the post on Night at Museum 3. And then this was pre-Stranger Things. And so then Stranger Things kicked in. And while we were coming up with ours and we were... I think finished our script, but we were casting. They were going on to shoot Stranger Things, and then that came out and became like the massive thing that it is today. And he's what I find very inspirational about Sean is that he's changed the path of his own career, and that's something we really strongly believe in ourselves. And we've done maybe two or three times at different points in our commercials career of just not happy with where we're standing right now, let's change it to something better, something that we want to be working on and bring other work in so that you physically change the type of stuff that you're seen as uh, to be a director on. And Sean fully did that, Um, went from much more of a kid-friendly, Disney-friendly director um, that was probably a little safer and a little broader than, than most, to someone that is now doing extremely elevated and sophisticated genre work. And that's kind of unheard of in a lot of ways, like like taking yourself from one very successful side of your career that you spent a decade working on and then changing it to utter success in a completely different avenue. Mm-hmm. And now he has a reputation that did not exist when we were – let me be honest. When we get when we gave him kid, it, it, it wasn't even there. We we were just able to see that through the conversations we had with Sean and 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 Dan over there at Twenty One Labs that this is the direction they're headed. And mm-hmm. this, and this, this I'll, I'll add to that with their, their company um, really kind of represented what we wanted to be as as filmmakers in this industry as well, which was, oh, uh, you know creatives that had multiple tastes that all kind of converged they were making um serious indie dramas like the spectacular now um they were doing tv work uh like stranger things they were working with someone like denis on arrival really sort of dense 
heady, sophisticated sci-fi stuff. And, and then they had some of what Sean was, was playing with previously, which was a little bit more studio, bigger, um, you know, s- summer movies. <clears throat> so being able to play in all of those camps was really exciting to us and, and right. definitely opened our minds quite a bit. Very cool. Very cool. I like, uh, I like this. Um, I, I've, I've got some fun questions for you to kind of round out our, our episode here. But uh, first off, um, what certain scenes from film have always stuck with you? Some of your favorite moments in movies, certain scenes. Um, okay. Well, let's, to do that, we probably need to name some of our favorite movies. Um, <laughs> I I wanted to do something fun as well and just talk about our favorite movies now, talk about our favorite movies as a 20-year-old, and talk about our favorite movies as a 10-year-old. And I think <laughs> by looking at that whole thing together, I think you understand who we are today. And I think we could take some of the movies from 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 our favorite films now and talk about the, some of the influential scenes from those that kind of influenced who we are now. But um, John, you want to kick off some of our favorite films as a ten year old? Uh, starting way back, yeah. I mean, look, the movie we've probably seen the most. Uh, I think we watched it every Sunday. Um, was Back to the Future, and. We watched it mainly uh, at our friend's house uh, for the reasons we've already talked about. And I think so much of that movie has kind of stuck with us. I mean, it's always been the bar of, like, entertainment. Um, yes. it, it, yeah. it, you know, it has humanity in it, has humor in it, it has the currency of cool in it, um, but all does it, does it in, a, in a purely sort of effortless way. Um, I don't know what what would our favorite uh, scene from Back in the Future be. Uh, I would say, I would say I like some of the scenes, like when he first arrives in 1955, and like, and he parks the car in the barn, and then he walks into town. I always found that probably my favorite section of the film because he's discovering something ridiculous and fantastical as the audience. Mm. Um, and I think that's always kind of stuck with us in the way that we try to tell commercials and we try to, uh, continue into the film is bring the audience, parachute the audience into something crazy and see it from a very grounded perspective. Mm. And you, you really related to his mom having a crush on him. (laughs) <laughs> yes that, that was that was very personal that was very personal it's very personal i, I love uh, I, I love that scene <laughs> where marty is trying to uh coach his dad on lessons and how to pick up girls like should i swear yes yeah, god damn it george swear <laughs> <laughs> yeah amazing so that was good i didn't pick up back in the day but um and I can't believe I didn't, but the scene when he's kind of coming into his dad's room as the nightmare dressed up and <laughs> he's got the com- the comic book and everything. I didn't realize all of the references to Star Trek and, and Star Wars <laughs> and all of that stuff in that scene when I was young. I don't know how I missed that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That was pretty great. 
Uh, one other film that we watched almost the same amount and in exactly the same period was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I still would put it on our list today. I watched it about two, about 20 days ago, uh, just before I had my second kid. And we were actually spending about 25 minutes watching the beginning of that movie as we should have been rushing to the hospital. And, <laughs> and the, the, doctor, the doctor said, yeah, you guys should come in now. And we, I, do, I was like, well, you always go too early. So we should, let's just w- watch this. And so we stuck around in our bedroom and watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And we almost didn't make it to the hospital. And <laughs> so Ferris Bueller is responsible for quite a bit. But it reminded me just... It reminded me just how much that movie I had memorized. Like I could pretty much say the first 20 minutes, like off the top of my head, which means we watched that shit a lot as kids. Mm. Um, And I still think it's some of the tightest, most contemporary um, dialogue. Like it's just so strong. That monologue of him, you know, the, the, lick your palms, you know, trying to get out of school. Is that one of the best monologues in movie history? Him just talking to the camera about how to skip school and fake your parents out. Like it's, and it's timeless too. Absolutely. Uh, I I think the talking to camera is, is, sorry. I I think the talking to camera is, is still like the perfect example of it. And every time you see it and you see, like I was watching high fidelity and Zoe Kravitz like turns the camera and does all that. So, which is, which is in the John Cusack version as well. But it's like, it built for me. I mean, I might be wrong. I'm sure there's other examples before 1986 or whatever it was, but it just, it, it owns that cliche and it does it so perfectly. And you're right. The, the way that he like turns the camera and he explains things about like lick your palms. I, I, I know it's a little infantile, but um, it's perfect. It just works so well. It does. I love that movie so much. <laughs> That's a good one. So that was growing up. Uh, so what about... Funny... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was, was going to say, well... Oh, sorry, Mark. I, I cut you off. Go for it. Uh, no, it, it just sounds like that we're all speaking the same language. We love it. And that kind of it describes um, what Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro calls a one-sock movie, where... If you're getting dressed and this movie's on, you will watch the whole thing before you do literally anything else. So almost yes. missing the birth of a child, it's a, it's a <laughs> rock movie. It's a yes. rock movie. That's yeah, that's pretty I'm gonna, great. I'm going to use that. Um, I mean, put it, put it this way. I was at the hospital and stressing out because we were pretty far along and it, time became a real issue. And I started cursing out like myself for watching Ferris Bueller's because it was so addictive. We just couldn't stop watching it. And it was the worst timing. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so what other movies would you put in the, the 10 year uh, category, Josh? Well, we don't have to go into detail, but I would say uh, the first Superman, Richard Donner Superman uh, had a real escapist um, power as us in our first 10 years of life. I think that was a huge one for us. Um, I would add to it the ones you probably already mentioned, Last Starfighter, um, that is pure wish fulfillment, and Flight of the Navigator, wish fulfillment in a slightly different and slightly more personal way. Um, I don't think Flight of the Navigator holds up 
to the degree I want it to. There is I'll past... be honest, the, the visual effects does, man. Like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I know. It's not seamless, but it's it's good. It's no, I was going to say, I was going to say half the movie is perfect and, and really lands, and half the movie is so corny and, like, th- that Pee Wee Herman voice uh, that the, the, the alien goes into and some of the gags and stuff. I watched it recently and I was like, ah, oh, man, half of it's really delivering and half of it, like, really turns me off. But but overall, as a concept, amazing film. Yeah, you didn't you didn't like the uh, the ten minute dog frisbee scene that the whole movie opened. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I don't Go think anybody's ever it's, recorded it's, that it's since weird. then. <laughs> it's a dog frisbee, a slow right. motion so what dog about, frisbee. What about the twenty year old? I would s- twins. Well, I would say at 20, we were into, I would say Shawshank Redemption had a big influence. That felt like an adult film, but it was still done with that level of, you know, commercial uh, heart that we were really into at the time. And so Shawshank would be a hard one to go past. Mm. Um, I would say The Fifth Element really delivered on scale and 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 it's kind of a really weird film still to this day like like i'm shocked how much money they poured into that film it's it's pretty amazing there's some quirky stuff going on in that um we really connected to out of sight when that dropped um in 98 i believe it was um and the relationship between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, I think both of them were just, it was very sharp. Um, the dialogue was perfect and still to this day is perfect. Um, and the David Holmes uh, soundtrack was just yeah. next, so next that, level that's, as well. That's probably the direction we were heading at 20 that, that was into some of that more. It's, it's still commercial, but it's a little left of center um, and out of sight, still kind of a perfect film. We were obsessed with the cable guy. For for <laughs> for quite a while. Me at, too. At that time, I um, I that movie is unbelievably good. I used to go to after that movie came out. I used to go to friends' houses and like feel on their walls and like <laughs> that's your sweet spot. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's there, amazing. I mean, it is it is still to this day like top five most quotable films ever like that and, and tommy boy is is like just extremely high on the list for quotes um and, and then the obvious like fight club matrix they were definitely on there you know just like alpha punk rock kind of movies yeah absolutely we, we were we were also obsessed with desperado which i don't know if it still holds up but at the time just felt so rock and roll it it was like Antonio Banderas was killing it, and, and, and Salma was like such a great character and about as sexy as it gets on film. And the action felt like it was really delivering, like it was super choreographed. Um, I just remember loving Desperado, and it was funny as shit as well. It, like, he really did a great job, especially going from El Mariachi, something that felt so independent, to Desperado really having a slickness on it. I was. I remember being very inspired as a filmmaker or as an early wannabe filmmaker by the level of quality that got like the polish that was on Desperado. 
Yeah, I think Desperado and Mallrats kind of were, felt like the next step for these filmmakers that we were watching that, that started with El Mariachi and Clerks and, and where that could where that potential could lead. That was right. a pretty exciting time. Right. And then I'd end it by saying early Michael Bay, are we, you know, I wouldn't say I'm much of a fan now, but at the time as a 20-year-old, Bad Boys and The Rock were about as solid as it gets. Um, I, I remember just being such a huge fan of Bad Boys specifically and it feeling so fresh for all the reasons that it, that it, that it was. I mean, taking two guys that had no reason to be in that movie and, and making them movie stars. Um, and then all the cliche slow-mo, you know, rising roaming cameras and all of the stuff that was in there just felt so fresh. Um, and so we were massively influenced by bad boys and that thing hung around forever. If you ask me when I was 18 all the way to 25, what your favorite movie was, I, my, my head wanted to say bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> Shit just got real. <laughs> yeah, totally. Having, so, said that, having said that, watching bad boys three while we were down, in, yeah, uh, South Africa fairly recently was one yeah. of the biggest disappointments of our life. Uh, yeah, it was a major part of our twenties in us that were just like, "No, dude, this is gonna be good." Trust yeah, me. And, and and then a small part of our twenties died on that day. <laughs> yes, that's I know. funny. I, know. I like that. I like All right, that. so so let's talk about some of our favorite films now, John. Go for it. Um, I mean, we we can't have this conversation without bringing up Children of Men. Um, it's it's a, probably yeah. a pretty pretty fitting time to be talking about a movie <laughs> that dark. Um, but yeah, Children of Men and the level of <clears throat> elevated, grounded, um, very smart sci-fi, um, but but fairly subtle sci-fi is something that's always sort of being a linchpin to the work that we want to create and, and things we, uh, a movie we reference a lot of and just talking about the, the very sort of very professional hand at sort of building a world like that, um, characters that you care about and, and the super subtle, um, visual effects and, and technology that kind of weaves its way into a, into a story like that. Yeah. The production design is super strong, um, in that film. And, and it has, like you're saying, this, this subtle near future sci-fi that is just shellacked all over that film. Um, yeah, it's a hard one to not say is our favorite every time the conversation comes up. Um, and then, then there's movies, timeless movies like um, Seven that will always be on sort of my top ten list. Um, it's kind of Fincher at it, at its best. It's super gritty. Um, yeah, really innovative movie for for its time period. Um, one one film that I always want to bring up is Road to Perdition. Um, just with how beautiful the cinematography is in that film and, and such a awesome cast working at such a high level mm. across the board, um, from Daniel Craig I, to Tom Hanks yeah. to, you know, just so, so awesome. The kid. I, I think, I think the three things working together in that is the music interweaving with the cinematography, weaving with the acting is just like really, really 
great. Um, Road to Perdition is a super good film. Um, I would say, what else can we put on that list? Um, I still really respect Heat. Um, I think that was pretty influential in 95 for us. And it's another one of those films that you mentioned where if it comes on, you're, you're going to get through a decent swath of that film. Um, heat and the, and the relationship between the white hat and the black hat is kind of perfect in that. And then also um, in, in the way that, that classic shootout scene kind of influences every shootout scene um, that's made beyond that. And even in Kin, when we get the chance to sort of really arc up for a moment, and it's not it's not long, but we definitely, in the sound design and, and in the way yeah. um, the sort of metal hits and, and the echoes and, and all of that kind of stuff that they really set the bar on, um, we, we talked about that film a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, always had a soft spot for Jerry Maguire, and I think it's a really, it's a really interesting film to become as famous as it did. It, I, I think it deserved it, and I think it was something worth talking about at the time. But I'm shocked that the amount of people fell into Jerry Maguire that did, because um, it's a pretty weird film. It's it's like. I don't know if in 2020 that movie is becoming as popular as it did in 96 or whenever it came out. It, it, I mean, being the drama that it is, and, and yes, there's romance, but it's not a traditional romantic comedy. It's not like it's, that's what it's leaning into. It feels like it's leaning into six different things at the same time. Um, you know, it, it, it's a sports film. It's got romance. It's got really good comedy, but almost none of those is what the film is uh, on center stage. Uh, structurally, it's quite a it's quite a bizarre film as well. If you break the script down and you break the editing down in that movie, it's 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 quite a, kind of weird. Totally. Yeah, so, weird. so something about Jerry Maguire and and Cameron Crowe in that period um, still is really strong. I think it's. One of Tom's best, um, and anybody that says Tom's not a great actor, there's, there's a handful of films out there you really should be watching because the guy's got, um, you know, got legs. Um, what else, John? It's probably our favorite filmmaker at the moment is is probably Denis Villeneuve. Um, Ooh, yeah. He's probably the most exciting filmmaker of today, and I think anything that he touches is gold. Um, and until he messes that up and he drops a bomb and one that even film fans are like, yeah, that's pretty bad, which I don't see coming anytime soon. Um, he's probably our favorite. And so prisoners is one that we really responded to both me and John and, and it's the tone, but it's also, again, the cinematography on top of that. Um, it's, it's the, it's the acting. I think, um, Gyllenhaal is, is, is amazing in that. And oh, huge keep, I mean, keep, keep going. Arrival yeah. enemy, you know, yeah. Blade Runner, twenty forty nine, uh, Sicario, yeah. like they're all, all fucking. Yeah, they're all amazing. Sicario gets referenced over in the Baker Brothers camp quite a bit. Um, that is, that's pretty amazing as well. So pretty much anything from Denis is getting the double thumbs up over here. So that's a lesson in how to turn a quick question into a twelve-minute uh, answer. No, that's great. <laughs> no, no, I, I love it because I love talking like the certain scenes and movies and filmmakers with everyone, and especially y'all because y'all seem to just to have this fiery passion for it. And I love 
it seems like we we have a, like a lot in common movie wise. So I, I'm just digging yeah. everything you're saying. Yeah, I think so too, man. So very cool, very cool. That's so great. Um, That's great. A, a couple uh, questions uh, to end it on. Um, one, since this is my bloody podcast, do you guys want to recommend mm. a horror film? that may people you want to like let the world know about uh sort of thing like i'll i'll go i'll go first i want to i want to just tell everybody since we know we brought him up earlier uh but dead end drive-in an australian dystopian film uh of the horror fashion from 1986 where uh, took place at a drive-in theater, which was basically a uh, <laughs> like a prison concentration camp for uh, rejects yep. and punk kids, and it ends with like a big car chase. And Brian Trenchard Smith, who did a lot of the Leprechaun movies and <laughs> um, BMX Bandits, Night of the uh, Night of the <laughs> Demons too. It's in there. If you can find this, it's all it's all on streaming. You have to pay for it, I think, for like two bucks or something, but. This movie's actually really good, and I really like this movie. So check out Dead End Driving if you can. Oh, okay, wow, that's cool. Um, I, I would say most of the stuff that we love when it comes to horror genre is everyone's going to be well aware of, and they've all probably seen, and they're probably on the top horror films of all time. Um, and I can list a bunch, but you've heard of all of those a million times. I think the ones that we could talk about that uh aussie maybe that people may not have seen um there's a handful i think if you haven't seen wolf creek oh yeah you should change that tomorrow tomorrow wolf creek is very influential in australia it took a guy an actor that people was used to seeing in a daytime soap and 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 quite a nice guy into a the, one of the more terrifying people in cinema history. Mm. Um, and so Wolf Creek is definitely worth seeing. I would say to jump back a bit, if you haven't seen Dead Calm, you should probably see that. Um, N- Nicole Kidman, still curly hair, still like, I don't know how many years after BMX Bandits, but not that long, made a movie with Billy Zane on a yacht called Dead Calm. Um, and that was that's that's pretty exceptional and one that we grew up with i remember my parents watching it and us me and john staying at the top of our stairs on the second level l- listening to the movie and being terrified by, by it and it's kind <laughs> of it's influenced us since and then to go back even further than that to 1970 i would say or 1971 there's a movie called wake in fright that jack rayner the actor from kin wouldn't shut up about literally anytime we had a conversation he would say about film he would say oh wake and fight such a good movie and it it's it's pretty messed up and i think people should check it out if they if they haven't seen it yeah donald pleasance was in that i think good memory ask ask (laughs) that is great we'll we'll, we'll ask him that was that was uh that was a Ted Kochip, right? He did uh, Ram- the first Rambo, and he yes. did uh, North Dallas Forty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. They, they nice. had a repertory screening of that at Fantastic Fest. I want to say Brian and I covered that festival for a number of years, but I think they showed it in 2014. It was like a awesome. 
a restored copy. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty gruesome. That's cool. And then John, some of our favorite horrors. Um, I mean, when I wouldn't say we're horror fanatics, but I really respect a sophisticated horror film. Um, and one that comes to mind for me is The Others. Um, oh, I love that I movie. Remember, I remember when it dropped being so impressed with the mm. tone of it and just – and I think the, the reveal, obviously, I mean, it's what the film's probably known for, but – I just remember in the same way of Sixth Sense and some of those early films from M. Night, just feeling like so impressed with the filmmaking on that one. So the others for me would be a big one. Yeah, I think we, we enjoy a lot of subtle horror stuff like Let the Right One In, um, It Follows, um, right. things like that, that, that that just feel like a little, uh, it's a terrible word, but just a little more elevated maybe, a little... Yeah, a little sort of more subtle. Um, For sure. Uh, I remember just recently we um, were invited to the premiere of Midsommar with Jack, and I think it's probably his best role that he's been in, Jack Rayner. Um, and that, for me, was hitting on a pretty high level of sophistication. Um, horror in the daylight, um, taking all these things that should be very pleasant and turning them into pretty horrific um, psychological stuff. And I don't remember it scarring me. I don't remember walking away going, okay, I never even want to think of that film. I actually found it more fascinating. Like I want to watch it again. Um, but God damn, did it have some pretty crazy stuff that they put on, on film. Oh yeah. Ari yeah, Aster. That, that, that film's great. I actually did a, and very early screening of that, uh, like I think six hours before my honeymoon. <laughs> so uh, fly nice, out of the country with that nice. on my mind. I was like, let's that's, get into it. <laughs> that's brilliant. There's that's actually like, a lot to talk about there. It's good. It's good. You guys had some shit to talk about. No, for yeah, sure. For also, sure. Um, rela- relationship dynamics as well. Come oh, man. Through. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot, there's a lot of fucked up stuff in there. Um, the the other one worth mentioning for me is I was I've always been really into the 28 Days Later franchise, oh, yeah. and I'm actually a big fan of 28 Weeks Later. I think I like it even better. Um, it's just oh man, talk about a film that's hitting on multiple levels of genre. Right. Um, the action is so extreme. And the zombie horror is pretty out there, and it's a very bloody movie. Like, I, I, my wife does not like horror films at all, and I, I probably watch maybe two or three with her in our entire relationship. But I remember sitting her down and going, yeah, 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 no, 28 Weeks Later is a great movie. We should watch that. And her just being, like, like scarred for life off the amount of blood on screen in that film. And, and there was the moment when... Um, what's his name um, from Train Spotting is sitting Robert, Robert, on her, Robert Carlyle. Yes, <laughs> and digging digging her eyes out yes. in that room. And I was I, I looked over and I was like, I don't remember it being so bloody. <laughs> but oh, it's it's such a good film, and the like the filmmaking itself in that thing is really really good. And obviously the first one had the the video camera aesthetic, and it was doing very fresh things from Danny Boyle. But I actually find the second one 
delivers more personally to me and my tastes and I, it's hard to go past well I that, mean, the, the opening scene yeah that opening scene is unbelievably good and yeah. all the way to the boat and and get so, in and he's like so good pulling away from the wharf and the zombies are all collected oh, it's so good well it's yeah. it, it's also with that film it shows how something so regimented and security wise can go tits up in a matter of like five seconds <laughs> yeah, and agreed. It's, yeah, and it's like agreed. really the, the pan- perfect the perfect movie to watch during a pandemic. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, kind of like today. Yeah, kind of like today. Yeah, I know. Oh, man, I want to watch it again now. That's great. That's no, great. And I love just when segue fan. back to reality, guys. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just when you when you mention the Robert Carlyle scene in that, it always brings me back to that train spotting moment where they freeze the frame on him is like Begbie didn't do drugs he did people <laughs> <laughs> yes and I love that so line. good it is it is uh, so Mar- good and he, here's a little tidbit for you um, something we don't t- t- talk about a lot but in Kin we really sat down and had meeting after meeting about how to make our bad guy which was ended up being played by James Franco um, iconic and and how to make how to not have a disposable bad guy and whether we succeeded or whether we failed I, we, we we get hit up quite often about people liking um taylor um his character from that film and and I, we had someone say i would watch an entire movie around just taylor as the like anti-hero and and so hopefully we were successful but that character was based around or at very least took reference from Begbie from Trainspotting. And, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> um, and, and, and you, you, can, you can draw parallels to maybe hairstyle, um, to um, wardrobe. Um, yeah, definitely, to, the, definitely the cardigan and the sweater, um, the bad sweater. Yeah, you, um, with, with loafers and dress pants um, or maybe a little bit of jewelry in a singlet. Um, and so, yeah, there was some visual parallels going on there, and we tried to take from something that wasn't American. Um, <clears throat> Begbie was pretty influential, um, or Train Spotting was pretty influential in Australia. Um, but also just this feeling of he can snap at any moment, and there's this real unpredictability to him, and and we tried to put that into the character as well. So, you know, side note, um, Taylor it comes from Begbie. I love that. That is so awesome. <laughs> now, now I got to go watch Ken again on my 4K and just see those parallels. Yeah. I like that. Uh, Mark, uh, did you have? Dude, did you the have day one? just. Go ahead. Sorry. What was that? Oh, I, sorry, we keep interrupting each other, but I just keep coming up with ideas for things to tell you guys that you might dig. And this is another one. The day that we sat down with James to tell him about his character, um, James is a very busy guy. Was a very busy guy at the time. Um, and so he was doing like 10 different projects at the same time. So it was more about getting his attention and being able to sit down and actually talk about something. And so we went to Soho house. We told him about the film. He asked some really interesting questions, things that you would never expect an actor to ask. Um, he, he asked us in the middle of that meeting, how does the weapon work? And we were like, I remember looking at John and we were like, um, are you serious? And he went, yeah, yeah. How, how, how does, how does the weapon work? And, and we kind of, had to scat our ideas off the top of our head of just like, um, 
well, it's a plasma-based weapon. It, <laughs> and, like, we, we literally were caught trying to explain what our sci-fi technology, what, what the alien technology in, this, in our sci-fi weapon was for the film. And that's the kind of level of detail that I respect. Um, and so the day we put together a Photoshop image, we took uh, images from, of James from online and we changed his haircut so that he had this giant mullet and we you know, we changed, we put it, we put a, uh, a grayed out pupil or an eye, his iris was, was a little bit washed out. Uh, we put some tattoos on his neck and, and we sent it over to him. We we're actually kind of nervous about him coming back and saying, this is silly or like, this is, this is going too far or this like, no, I, d- I just don't like the hair or whatever. And James is the type of actor that is down for whatever. And he said to us very early on, look, I am, I'm here for you guys to, to do your vision. So like whatever you guys are thinking, let's talk about it. And I'm here to do it. And so from the very beginning, James was down and he rolled onto set with uh, an hour to go before he had to be on camera. And so we went through all of his wardrobe. We cut his hair, we put tattoos on and we got him in front front of camera all in an hour and so he if he had even one question of like no i'm not doing that it, we, we, we would have been screwed but he was so down to just dive into a crazy character as we all know he's played you know a million characters in his career and some, some of the best best ones was like alien um, from screen breakers he's done some pretty crazy shit and he was down to bring that kind of begby vibe and and design this character with us <laughs> i love it that's that, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll just quickly continue that story because no one knows this, but we ended up, there was a scene that was cut out of the movie where Taylor is sort of in his own head after the, the death of his brother. And obviously the movie is called Kin. It's, it's about how um, sort of tragedy within in different family groups affect all of these characters in the film, even the villain. And, and he was just sort of sitting there stewing, like he's going to freaking murder someone. And he flips the table that he's, he's sitting at and he's wearing a bathrobe and you can see the bathrobe open as he kind of turns towards camera. And he has this gigantic witch style, um, goat's head skull tattoo on his chest and it was something that we actually got drawn up, designed, and and put on James's chest. And it was only going to be visible in this one shot in this movie. So you look at it and you're like, holy fuck, what is that? And <laughs> it got cut out of the movie. And while we were shooting that scene, James moved his arm across the table to clear the table of what was on it. And there was a cigarette ashtray a gun and a couple other things on the, on the table. And as he just like moved, shook them off the table with his arms, sweep them off and then flip the table upside down. The porcelain of the ashtray hit a wall, bounced back and cut a major gash in his arm. And the take ends and we're all like, wow, that was incredible. Walk over. And James is sucking just kind of like, sucking the blood off his arm because he's just cut it and we're like you're right dude and he goes yeah yeah i'll be fine Can i just get me a bandage or something and we'll go again and we look down at his arm and there is a no shit two inch long gash 
Whoa. James is up. And this was the first scene that we'd shot with James. And me and Josh look at each other like we just broke a major Hollywood actor. <laughs> and we were like n- nervous, just like, what, what are we doing? And he's like, no, nah, I'm good to go. And he, he wrapped it up with gauze and did, the, did another take. It was incredible. Not in that's amazing. You know, he uh, he really was one of the best parts of the movie, and I feel like you and I had a 16-minute uh, uh, interview on camera. We did 45-minute Q&A with the audience, and it's been kicking me for a long time. I was like, why didn't we touch on Franco, 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 Franco? So I'm right. glad you dropped all those nuggets on us. Well, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's yeah. a story no one knows, so uh, that's, that's just exclusive for you dudes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. Exclusive. Air high five. <laughs> I like that. Um, well, I, one, one last question for you guys um, about yeah. uh, since we're, we, we also love music, we love songs and soundtracks and whatnot. And with Ken, you had uh, Mogwai mm-hmm. do the music for you. But I would like for you to pick a song that you think would pair well with your film Ken based on tone or – you know, either something you had the rights to but didn't get them or something like that. Okay. I mean, that's a, it's a really hard one um, to say. For, for, well, for starters, we got everything that we were after. We were so lucky. We wrote into the script that Taylor would, was listening to a Joni Mitchell song in a scene. And, you know, it, it's kind of, Pulp Fiction style, if you don't get that song, you're kind of ruining the scene in a lot of ways. And so it was a bold move. It was something we were nervous about from day one. And it was a song called Help Me by Joni Mitchell. And we always had this thing that that Taylor's character would be into very sweet uh, folk music from the 70s. And that he would listen to it whenever he got the chance. And so there was a couple chances in the film that you would hear his taste in music running in the background and it would just be like, wow, that guy's doing some creepy stuff. Or he makes very sweet things creepy very quickly. Um, and the Joni Mitchell song, we were just really nervous that they were going to say, yeah, that's a, that's a hard pass from us. <laughs> and, so, and so on set, um, in probably one of the more crucial scenes in the film, it turns into a bit of a gunfight. Um, he has this radio and it's playing Joni Mitchell. And when we were shooting it, James said to us, um, so what song is going over this again? And we were like, oh, it's a Joni Mitchell song. And he's like, yeah, which one? And we were like, oh, it's Help, Help Me. And so he went away and he pulled up his Spotify and he pulled up Help Me and he memorized the song like while we were setting up this scene. And so we could see him doing it and we're like loving it. We're like, this is, this is amazing. He's like fully getting into character. And then the next take comes out and he sings a portion of the song. And so immediately we're split into two minds. One mind is, this is amazing. This is like exactly what you want for the scene. And the other side is the editor side of us going, hang on a second, if he's singing the wrong part, he's really tying us into using just that section of the song, and or, that may not work. Or if we don't get the song license, the scene doesn't work. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And so I remember one of the more awkward moments on set that we had was me saying to James, James, I love it. I think it's brilliant. But you got to give us one where you don't sing. And it was like 
looking a gift horse in the mouth and saying, that's not amazing, when I knew it was amazing. And see, he looked at me with these eyes of such disappointment where he was like, like, dudes, are you serious? Like, grow some balls. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you gold right now. <laughs> yeah, like, grow some balls and just run with it. And I was like, look, I had to explain myself and be like, look, dude, I, trust me, I love it. But if this doesn't work or if we don't get this, this song, we're kind of screwing ourselves. Like, you got to give me one without. And he reluctantly did. But, and luckily, we didn't have to use it in the movie because by the time we get to the edit, um, we've done our... Uh, uh, all the song um, rights and Joni Mitchell's camp um, saw that had to see the scene. We had to send it over and they had to watch the scene and, and thank God they saw the humor in it and they thought, yeah, this is rad. And they let us use the song for the scene. So we kind of got all the music that we were after um, and all the songs that you're coming up with in the edit that you're like, Oh, that'd be amazing to put in there. We'd send it off and we'd find that it would be a part of the budget and we could actually get it. And we got approval. So the other, the other part of this that I need to bring up is just, you know, having Mogwai do the entire score was such a, a, a dream come true for us because during the prep of the, during the writing of the script, during all of uh, the beginning process of this movie, we had, a playlist that we would send to different heads of department, especially the writer as he was writing the script. And most of the music on that Spotify playlist was Mogwai. And we're obviously huge fans from a lot of their different albums, some of their scoring for different shows that they've done over the years. And when they finally said yes to actually scoring the movie, it was just like, are you serious? Like you, you want to do this? And they said, yeah, we get, we get asked a lot, to be honest, a lot of big Hollywood stuff ask us to score, you know, their movies and stuff, but we really, really connected with this and we're actually huge sci-fi fans. Um, no one really knows that, but we'd love to do this. So the chance of actually working with one of our favorite bands and then later, uh, in post-production going out to Glasgow and actually being in the studio with those guys as they're, laying down the final versions and then beyond that them saying we'd love to take some of these cues from your movie and actually extend them into full studio songs is it okay if we make an album a mogwai album called kin and release that and we were like are you kidding me yes let's do this so it was just <laughs> such a beautiful process to be able to actually sort of have a say and 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 in a sense help produce our favorite mogwai album I mean, that, that's just, that's never going to repeat itself. That's amazing. I like it. Well, well, well. I think the one song that I picked for Ken is a band called Hollis, H-A-L-L-A-S, and their mm -hmm. song is called Star Rider. Okay. Um, and it's an amazing song, and they're an amazing band. I highly... Highly recommend checking out Hollis um, Star Rider. The song is called Star Rider, but uh, I don't know. I when I heard that song, I was like, "Oh man, this would be fit perfectly in this film." Maybe y'all would agree or disagree, but uh, I love this song. Oh, I love this band. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll post that's that. That's great. How do, you, how do you spell Hollis? H A L L A S. All right, cool. We'll check them out, man. Yeah, check um, them where, out. Do you, where, do you know where they're from? They are, oh God, what's the uh, Sweden, Swedish band. 
all right, this looks this looks totally um, fucked up, and I bet it could totally be in the movie. And now we have regrets. <laughs> no, the, the, Thank you, man. The, the, you'll, I think you'll like this band after you hear this song. Uh, it's just a cool. I just I thought of it, and I thought that that would be cool. Mark, do you have a song that you would think would go well with Ken? Uh, it'd probably be uh, "Together Again" by the Muppets because you know the brothers <laughs> get back together. Or uh, 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 yes. yes. Or yes. uh, free guys. I think I think everything's leading like to the culmination of that song. Kind of yeah, like in totally. The Devil's Rejects. You know, there's that big like scene. I think like the whole climax of Kin could be like the end of Freebird. So, so John, there was a moment that we wanted a song that I remember we kind of didn't get um, when they first leave town and they're in the car together and Jack's playing the radio. Um, there was a Bowie song that we wanted on that. Um, which one was it? it because oh, I remember, dear. I remember, I, I, I remember, remember it was, uh, yeah, it, 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 when you, when we looked it up and, and we were experimenting with different music in that scene, it, it actually answered a lot of the secrets of what the film, where it was going and what the tone of it was. And so I remember we were laughing going, Oh man, if we could get this, this would be perfect. I can't remember which Bowie song it was, but um, obviously a lot of Bowie stuff specifically from uh, Ziggy Stardust period was all um, space themed. And, and so we were trying to kind of, there was a moment where we had the weekend Starboy in there and we're like, you could call the movie Starboy because that kind of plays into Eli's character really well. And so we were always trying to um, mix uh, different genre, but also inject like very subtle sci-fi references into everything that we did. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of Easter eggs that are actually in the movie that we never even found the right forum to point out. And, and in hindsight, the director's commentary on the, on the, on the Blu-ray would have been a great place. Uh, but I don't know if we even pointed them all out there. Yeah, we might, we might have, we might have. Yeah, we might have talked about we them. Should but check that out and see if we do. But there was like there's references to a lot of the films we've talked about um, today, from Aliens to um, even Indiana Jones and and uh, Back to the Future. A lot of the movies that we grew up with, um, little things scattered through the film that you can kind of see that reference those very specifically, like uh, the mug that is on the table where Taylor, James Franco has his feet up in the construction site trailer, um, says Belloc steel on it. Um, there's from Indiana Jones. Yeah. yeah from Indiana Jones. And, and there's like signs at the junkyard early on that says, um, Kodan scrap and toe, which is the Kodan Amada from, uh, the last starfighter. So there's a lot of little things that kind of, peppered from our life and our uh, influences in kin um, it's actually it's, it's actually really easy to to put these easter eggs in because they constantly when you're making a movie they're coming to you and saying we need a name for this farm that you that we're featuring or we need a name for this scrap and tow yard that we're building and so you can choose to say uh, come up with whatever you want or or take a name from somebody on the crew or you come up with some cool shit from movies that you grew up with and say put that in 
<laughs> That's great. Oh, I love that aspect. Oh, well, you know what would be really cool, guys, is um, we a two year anniversary of Kin is coming up in August. Maybe we have you back on and we do a live commentary. No, we we should have uh, we we should get these guys come back to Dallas and do a big screening for the anniversary. <laughs> uh, I like that. So that'd, be, that'd be super fun. Let's see if we can travel in that time uh, <laughs> that'd be amazing but, but if if we can we'll be there that'd be fun uh, i gotta say uh b- both of you guys were, were big champions uh for the movie and mark especially the conversations we've had on the press tour back then uh and the q a at the screening i gotta say man that that's some real memorable stuff and you guys are super respectful and uh we appreciate it we're, we're there for you for whatever in the future well, thank you guys. Thank you. We we appreciate you being on, and this was yeah, this was that fun. A that yeah. means a whole lot. Mark's a good yeah, I'm guy. Glad you guys had fun. It's always cool to talk uh, about our influences and, and childhood and reminisce on on that kind of stuff. It's it's fun. I hope uh, audiences get into it. Right, right. Um, so, before we end, uh, can do y'all want to give out like any information, like your website or anything like that? People to follow you, the listeners and whatnot. Yeah, uh, on on Twitter, uh, we are Red Bike Blue Bike. Um, on Instagram, the same uh, Red Bike Blue Bike. You can find us, um, and we, we have all personal stuff as well. But uh, yeah, the the directing duo uh that we learned today is called twin uh and jonathan and josh baker yeah red bike blue bike is pretty much our our thing nice nice and please please seek if you haven't seen it go seek out ken k-i-n download it on itunes or amazon prime buy it on 4k or blu-ray just get this movie you're gonna want to own it and, and, yeah, the I, I, and the Mogwai soundtrack. The Mogwai soundtrack is definitely something worth uh, your time. Um, the guys themselves uh, think it's great, and we do too. So if mm. you can track that down or, or just grab it on Spotify, give it a listen. It's really good. Sweet deal. And thank you guys for coming on the show. And we hope to have another fun conversation in the near future and be safe out there. Yeah, you too. You too. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. Uh, everyone stay healthy, stay safe. We'll uh, hopefully talk soon. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Enjoy, your, enjoy your 41st birthday or 44th, 40, 41st year in this wonderful <laughs> your, pandemic. Your 29th right. birthday. Thanks, right. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Take care, guys. Later, guys.